0: And Lord, as we prepare our own hearts to come to your word, we thank you for your word. Apart from your word, Lord, all we would have is quicksand to build our lives on. We would have no moral compass to guide our lives, no light to lead us on the paths we travel. And so we thank you for your word, and we do not take it for granted. But we ask, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word that You would use it to shine light into our, uh, into our hearts, to drive away any darkness. Use Your Word, O oh Lord, to accomplish Your purposes in our lives. Use it to make us more like Christ. Use it to make us less like the world. Use it that we may know how to live a life that is pleasing to You and that glorifies Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount today, which of course we do on the first Sunday of every month. We believe that all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work, and that includes both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and so we like to keep one foot in both here at New Beginnings Church. But today we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, looking at verse 7, uh, as we continue in our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And as we do continue our study in, in, this, uh, in this chapter, on um, in, in this sermon, and we continue to examine each one of the principles that are being laid out at the front of this sermon, probably Jesus' most famous sermon, which is titled, uh, these, these uh, principles are titled the Beatitudes, uh, we'll continue to see that there's a spiritual progression that takes place as we go through the Beatitudes one at a time. Uh, There's no question in the mind of somebody who's who's read these and who's really studied them in depth there's no question that there is actually a very specific spiritual sequence to them. They're not just uh, laid out randomly. Uh, So first Jesus said back in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Christian life, that is, must begin with the understanding that we have done nothing good. That we have nothing good to stand upon before God. We have no good that we can claim as our own before God. And when we realize this, it has a very specific effect on us. When we realize that we have only offended God in every way possible, it has a way of humbling us. Uh, making us realize uh, our our need for Christ, right? And becoming poor in spirit. That's what it means, to be humble, basically. That was the effect of the first beatitude. From there we moved on to verse 4. The Lord Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And what we saw was that this is a mourning over the fact that we are poor in spirit, over the fact that we have nothing good of ourselves to stand on before God. It's a grieving over our utter and complete sinfulness, and our inability to do what God requires that we do, apart from his grace working in us to turn us from sin, to conform us to Christ's likeness, and to not only turn us from sin and fill us uh, with with, uh, Christ's righteousness, but also to fill us with a desire to do what is good and pleasing in his sight. Not only that desire but also the ability. It's only done by His Spirit. It can't be done by the unregenerate, unconverted person. It's only something that we can do by the Spirit. But it starts with being poor in spirit and grieving over the fact that we are poor in spirit. Third, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, this referred to an abandoning of our, uh, of our rightful privileges and our, uh, our independence, our autonomy, uh, our desire to take care of things, uh, of everything by ourselves, according to our own wisdom, and instead trusting in God to provide for our needs, uh, rather than trying to take everything into our own hands. Kind of like Jesus, when he was tried uh, before the Pharisees, uh, he was just quiet. He was silent and trusted Himself in the Father's hands. And again, this is all about spiritual progression. There's a progression going on here. Each quality either flows from the previous one, or uh, it's closely connected to the previous one. The fourth beatitude that we saw in verse 6, it it sort of started to change the direction, if you remember. Uh, It started to change the direction of the focus. The first three were kind of like a mirror that shows us who we really are. It, it, they forced us to, to look within ourselves to see if we have these things, and to discover that we don't. Uh, so it forces us to look inside first, but we saw that if we focus entirely on ourselves and don't lift our focus, all we can do is either lie to ourselves and suppress the truth in unrighteousness, or will be led to despair and so the fourth beatitude turned our attention from looking within for a righteousness that we don't have to looking to christ in whom righteousness is found blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied because christ's righteousness is sufficient for all Jesus was referring to the longing for righteousness that a person feels when they, when they look within and realize that they have no righteousness of their own to claim. So the Beatitudes continue to change direction in the verse that we come to today, as we get to the fifth Beatitude. Now up until this point, the focus has been kind of on on what we're lacking, right? We've seen all these things that the natural man is lacking and what we came to desire as a result of our utter lacking. We're lacking the, the first three Beatitudes, right? And the fourth becomes what we desire, the righteousness of Christ. But this Beatitude, the fifth Beatitude, as well as the three that follow, um, we'll shift our focus to what we do as those who have had the very righteousness of Christ imputed to us as new beginnings, uh, as new creations in, uh, in Christ Jesus. Now maybe you've seen the, the funny t-shirt that says, at the top it says, uh, to do is to be, and of course that quote is attributed to the great, uh, the great Greek philosopher Socrates. Under that, the, the middle one is another Greek philosopher, Plato, who's quoted as saying, uh, to be is to do. And the third line, of course, is from Frank Sinatra, which says, dooby 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 do. Right? <laughs> biblically speaking, sorry, Frank, you're wrong. Uh, and so is Socrates. They're both mistaken. Uh, biblically speaking, Plato was actually correct. Uh, to be is to do. And when I say that, what I mean is that what we do follows or or flows from what we are. What we do flows from what we are. That's why the Apostle Paul writes of the unconverted, of the, the unregenerate in Romans chapter 8, verse 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why can't they please God? Because... What you do flows from what you are. And if you are spiritually dead, you can't do what pleases God. It's really kind of ridiculous that we would expect those who neither know nor fear nor walk with the Lord to do what is pleasing to God, isn't it? Given how clearly Paul has laid this out for us, what we do flows from from what we are. Again, Paul makes it clear for us that what we do flows from what we are in First Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, verses 9-13 uh, to 13, where he writes this. He says, I wrote you in my previous letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all the with immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one for what have I to do with judging outsiders do you not judge those who are within the church but those who are outside God judges so what's Paul saying there Paul's saying that we shouldn't expect those who neither know nor believe in the Lord Jesus to behave in the same way as those who do we, we don't hold the world to biblical standards. We don't expect the world to act like saints. We expect them to act like unregenerate sinners. And when we hold the expectation that the world have a biblical morality, we're really just setting ourselves up to be completely confused. Paul says that we can expect the natural, unconverted, unregenerate man to act like an unconverted, unregenerate, natural man. And we aren't to hold him to the same standards that we would hold a man who says he's a Christian. And thus we are to tolerate the sinful behavior of the unconverted and to leave it to God to judge. But when a brother or sister in Christ is guilty of those same behaviors, when somebody who claims to be a Christian is acting like the world, we do hold them to a higher standard. We do expect more of them. We aren't to judge outsiders. We aren't to judge unbelievers. But we are absolutely to deal with professing Christians who are walking in sin. Do you see how clearly this is laid out for us? What we do flows from what we are and we have to realize that there is what you would call an ontological change that takes place what that means is a change in being a change in nature that takes place when a person is made anew as a new creation in Christ Jesus the promise of God is revealed uh, to and, and by the prophet Ezekiel was this, God said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. From Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven. Why is it necessary for God to do that? Because if God doesn't put his spirit within us, we will not do what is pleasing to him. We will not walk in accordance with his statutes. In fact, we won't even desire to. The natural man never does. And this we should note is what makes the idea that we can create a Christian nation through social activism rather than by the preaching of the gospel so completely ridiculous. And this is why it's so important that we do preach the gospel. This is why missions are important. This is why we love and support our street preachers because faith comes by hearing. They must hear the gospel. Do we want a nation that's characterized by Christian values? Of course we do. Of course we do. But at the same time, we don't expect worldly people to act in a way that is other than worldly. So how do we change the world? By preaching the gospel. If we love our neighbor rightly, we want it We want society to be governed by biblical principles, of course. We desire Christian rulers. We desire Christian governors who enact laws that align with God's Word. Of course we desire and we pray for these things. But for this to happen... Hearts must be changed. How are hearts changed? By the preaching of the gospel. The gospel must go forth in the power of the Spirit. The great tragedy of the so-called second great awakening, which really wasn't a great awakening at all, was that it relied on man's ideas and methodologies. These people wanted people to be saved. They wanted a biblical morality, right? But instead of preaching the gospel, they implemented their own ideas and methodologies. And thus it resulted in behavior modification, which isn't entirely a bad thing. To to an extent we can say, okay, it's great that people aren't sinning as much, but behavior modification should never be confused with heart transformation, and yet it often is. Behavior modification should never be confused with heart transformation. They are two totally different things. Behavior modification is a broad and easy road that leads to death, destruction, and eternal hell. Heart transformation is what matters. And that's why God says that He is looking at the heart. He's not looking at appearances. He's looking at a person's heart. He's looking at their motivations. Why are they acting the way they are? Is it because they've been socially trained? He doesn't care. Is it because their heart has been transformed? That's what matters to God. What we do flows necessarily from what we are. Those who are in Adam, those who are in the flesh, can do nothing that is pleasing to God, but for the person whose heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of living flesh we should expect that they will do things that are pleasing to God. So the person who has hungered and thirsted for righteousness, and who has found that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they have been filled and satisfied with Christ's perfect righteousness, which has been transferred, credited, imputed to them, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything about a person, including their nature, what they are are and thus we should expect that it will change what they do that's the way change must happen and so jesus says as we come to verse 7 blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy and by this he gives us the fifth beatitude this is a quality this is a virtue that flows immediately out of the previous Beatitude. And yet it's really, really common for people to completely trash this beatitude, to completely misunderstand this beatitude. So let's start with what this does not mean. First of all, this does not mean that if a person shows mercy to others, to his fellow man, that God will show him mercy. That's not what this is saying. Nobody is saved. Nobody is shown mercy by God as a result of there having been a person who delighted in showing mercy to others. Nobody. Nobody. If this were the case, this would change our whole uh, theology of, of salvation that we find throughout the entire Bible. Instead of having a A system of grace, a theology that revolves around grace, we'd have a theology of salvation that revolves around merit. A case in which God owes mercy to some people. To whom is God indebted for mercy? Nobody. Absolutely nobody. Rather, what the Scripture says is, He has mercy on whom He desires. Romans uh, 9.18, which is derived, by the way, from Exodus 33.19, where God says to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Hold on to that thought, that, that thought of compassion, because it's going to be central to what we see mercy to actually be. But this is good news. Because the truth is that nobody deserves mercy from God. God would be perfectly just to show no mercy to anyone. Because nobody has earned it. What have we earned? We've only earned His wrath. So justice doesn't require that God show mercy. God is indebted to no one for mercy. He's sovereign over whom His mercy is shown to. It's given entirely... Uh, based upon his own sovereign prerogative and not based on merit. So this is the first misunderstanding, the idea that God will show mercy to anyone and everyone who is merciful to other people now if all we had was this single verse if we didn't have the whole bible and all we had was this single verse we can understand why somebody would mean it that way because that's the way the world thinks the world thinks if i do this god will do that right if i do this god will owe me that uh works right works salvation is how the world thinks but this verse isn't all we have We have an entire Bible to work with. And obviously, a system of merit, a theology of salvation that revolves around merit, doesn't fit at all with the Bible's message about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The second thing that we have to understand is, is that this is not something that the natural, unconverted person is capable of having. And yet we recognize that some people certainly are more mild-mannered, they they have less of a temper, Uh, they're more predisposed toward being people who are merciful. Uh, It's not uncommon, for example, to see an unbelieving judge show mercy to a criminal. In fact, in our day and age, we see this all the time. Uh, An unregenerate billionaire can buy a sandwich for a hungry person or for a billion hungry people, and, and they can show mercy. But like every other quality and virtue that we've examined in our study of the Beatitudes, whatever Jesus is saying here, whatever he means here, it cannot be something that is possessed or can be practiced by those who are not of his kingdom. So what does it mean to be merciful? Biblically speaking, what is mercy? Well, we probably all recognize that Mercy and, and grace are kind of closely related. In fact, if you were to, to you know, put a couple circles, you'd see a lot of, of overlap between the two. The, mercy and grace are closely connected, closely related to, the, to, to one another, and yet they are not the same thing. There is a distinction to be made between grace and mercy. Uh, grace means not getting what you deserve, Grace means not getting what you deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, means getting something that we don't deserve. So one's negative, not getting what we do deserve. One's positive, getting what we don't deserve. Uh, We can understand how closely related these two concepts are when we consider that a criminal who is pardoned receives both mercy and grace. Uh, He deserved to spend time in prison, perhaps, or or maybe he just deserved a fine. Uh, But he doesn't get what he deserved, and thus we can say he's shown grace. But at the same time, we could say that he was given freedom or that he was granted forgiveness. And so in that sense, he got what he didn't deserve. So in that sense, we'd say that he got both mercy and grace. That's how closely connected these two concepts are. But let me give you a definition of grace. A.W. Pink, I think, gives us a great definition for, uh, for, for mercy. I'm sorry. Uh, A.W. Pink gives us a good definition. He says this. He says, It is that grace that causes one to deal leniently with an offender and to scorn the taking of revenge. And he goes on to say, It is the forgiving spirit it is the non-retaliating spirit. It is the spirit that gives up all attempts at self-vindication and would not return an injury for an injury, but rather good in the place of evil and love in the place of hatred. End quote. That's what mercy is. It's interesting to note that the concept between doctrine and deeds between what you believe and how you behave. Uh, The church Uh, throughout the ages has recognized that uh, the book of Romans is kind of Paul's magnum opus right that it's the the most significant work that he uh, that he left for us Uh, but he spends 11 chapters in Romans giving us just one doctrine after another after another showing how all these biblical doctrines fit together to give us the gospel but then Paul changes directions when he gets to Romans chapter 12. Instead of saying, uh, you know, hey, why don't you, now that I've given you the gospel, now that I've illustrated it for you, now that I've told you all these glorious truths, why don't you just spend the rest of your lives just considering these beautiful doctrines? Just spend the rest of your life thinking about these, these beautiful truths. Know them inwards and outwards. Know them backwards and forwards. Instead, what he does is he writes this in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore I urge you, in other words, in light of all this doctrine, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and perfect, uh, good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, when we understand the way that the mercies of God are revealed by all these doctrines that we put together and find the gospel in, if we, understand that the way, that the, if we understand the way that the mercies of God are demonstrated in the gospel, when we understand that we have become, by grace, recipients of these mercies, it should cause a change in the way that we live our lives. James Montgomery Boyce writes that, quote, Christian doctrine must always express itself in a new outlook on life and changed behavior. What you believe must always affect your conduct end quote. Now let's consider the way that this beatitude is closely connected closely related to the previous one there in the previous beatitude Jesus said blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied the question is was your hunger and thirst for righteousness quenched did did, did you have Christ's own perfect righteousness imputed to you on the basis of merit was it because you deserved it was it because your good deeds outweighed your bad deeds and jesus said okay well i'll just fill in what's needed for your bad deeds because that's the way the world thinks so was it because of merit that christ's righteousness was imputed to you that you became a recipient of that mercy was it because you were a good person that you were credited with his perfect righteousness absolutely not Rather, it was an act of mercy on God's behalf to not only allow you to see your own unrighteousness and to see Christ's righteousness, but also to clothe you in Christ's perfect righteousness. It's all mercy. It's all things that we don't deserve. And so what Jesus is saying here is that those who have experienced God's mercy, those who have freely received mercy, what they did not deserve, that being Christ's righteousness, cannot help but show mercy to others. They cannot help but be merciful people themselves. Conversely, and, and this beatitude implies a very serious warning, if we do not love to show mercy to others, if we are unmerciful people, we demonstrate that we are either severely and, and dangerously lacking in understanding regarding the mercy that we have been shown, or, worst case scenario, we're demonstrating that we have never truly received God's mercy to begin with. This attitude of mercy has been demonstrated countless, countless times by Christians who have forgiven people who have murdered their family members and people they love. You've probably seen this happen in the news and a, a recent article written in uh, 2015 starts out this this way it says one by one the family members of slain Emmanuel AME church members faced their loved one's suspected killer head on and rather than condemning him they offered their forgiveness as the relatives spoke out During 21-year-old Dylan Roof's initial bond hearing on Friday, they expressed hope for his redemption and promised to pray for his soul through a tearful round of family statements. You don't see worldly people doing that kind of thing. You just don't. You don't see worldly people showing that kind of mercy. But you do see God's people throughout the ages showing that kind of mercy. And that's the kind of mercy, this is the kind of mercy that Jesus is talking about here. It's not vindictive at all. It does not seek vengeance at all. It seeks the good of the person who has done wrong. It's a mercy that the world, that those who have never tasted the sweet mercy of God for themselves, that they cannot even possibly begin to understand. And it speaks volumes of the difference that God's mercy makes in the lives of His people. Now, Jesus illustrated this type of mercy in at least two of His parables. First, let's consider the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right off the bat, by the way, when I say the good Samaritan, we should uh, realize that the idea of calling a Samaritan good would have sounded scandalous to to the Jewish person's ear in the first century. It would have been completely offensive. But in Christ's wisdom, he told the parable in this manner anyway as a means of highlighting the lack of mercy that the Jews demonstrated toward their enemies. So to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan, you have to first understand that the Jews and the Samaritans were not cordial. They were not on good terms with one another. They weren't friendly toward one another at all. They were sworn enemies. And it wasn't just this generation, the first generation, uh, the first century generation. No, it was something that had lasted for generations. Uh, Following Israel's fall to the Assyrians that we read about in the Old Testament, some of the Jews married into the Assyrian culture that had conquered them, and their offspring were a people known as Samaritans. Uh, And so vile was this intermarrying that the Jews referred to the Samaritans as dogs. Uh, They saw them as as half-breeds, as infidels. And so the animosity between the the Jews and the Samaritans just increased exponentially throughout uh, the generations that followed after that. Consider uh, all the problems that the Samaritans created for the Jews who returned to uh, rebuild Jerusalem after they were freed from Babylonian captivity. Who was giving them problems? The Samaritans were. So we read in the parable of the first Samaritan, in the 10th chapter of Luke's Gospel, where Jesus says this. He says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side." But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, again, hold on to that, When he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. So did... This Jewish man who was beaten and left for dead, did he deserve to be taken care of by the Samaritan? The clear answer is no. He didn't deserve it. The Samaritan had no obligation to spend his own time and to spend his own money to help somebody who was his sworn enemy. But he did it anyway. And why did he do it? Why did he help this man who was left for dead? Jesus says, when he saw him, he felt compassion compassion must be included as part of our understanding of mercy because compassion is the part of mercy that sympathizes with someone that feels empathy towards some that i will show compassion on whom i will show compassion so compassion is central to our understanding the biblical understanding of mercy now, to follow up this on this lesson in the parable, Jesus turns to the man who asked the question. He, he turns to those who are listening, and he says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Of course, the options would be uh, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan. And keep in mind, the question that provoked uh, this parable was... Who is my neighbor? A question that would only be asked by someone who wants to make sure that he's not treating people uh, like a neighbor who he shouldn't treat like a neighbor. And the correct answer, of course, which the people around may have been tempted to mutter through clenched teeth, was the Samaritan. The Samaritan was the one that acted like a neighbor. He alone proved to be a neighbor because he alone showed mercy and compassion to the man who had been beaten and robbed. And so the the parable concludes, or the passage concludes, with the man who asked the initial question about who his neighbor is uh, answering Jesus' question, saying, The one who showed mercy toward him. Notice, by the way, when he answers, he does not utter the word Samaritan. Instead, he just says, The one who showed mercy toward him. Awkward, right? And Luke tells us then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. The second parable that demonstrates this principle of mercy uh, and how eager we should be to show mercy as people who have received God's mercy is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, This parable was initiated by Peter in one of Peter's finer moments uh, when he comes up to Jesus and he asks Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, I, I think Peter was thinking that showing mercy seven times was really kind of overboard. That was really going, you know, the extra mile. And we can imagine that his brother had just hit number eight. And so Jesus answers in a way that must have really made Peter's heart sink. He responds by saying, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And of course, that would be 490 if we're doing math. But the reality is, if you can hold uh, something against somebody 490 times, you didn't forgive them even once. So he then goes on to tell the story, a parable of a servant who was in debt to his master for an exorbitant amount of money, just an enormous amount of money, an amount that you know maybe in our day and age would be comparable to just tens of millions of dollars. If you can imagine having that much debt, it would just be crushing. And that's kind of the point that Jesus was making. And at that point, it may as well have been, you know, if it's going to be a couple, uh, you know, 10, 20 million, it may as well just be 100 trillion, and as far as I'm concerned. I've got an equal chance of getting out of it either way. The point was, there was no way that the servant would ever get out from under this debt. He would never be able to repay his master. But we read in Matthew chapter 18, verses 26 and 27. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, before his master, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave, the, forgave him the debt. There's that word again, compassion. The master forgives the slave of his debt. Why? Because he has compassion on him. He shows him mercy. But at this point, the slave does something that should strike us as being very strange. He leaves his master's Presence, his quarters, wherever it was, and he immediately goes and he finds a fellow slave who owed him only a slight fraction of the debt that the first slave had owned to, owed to his master. Uh, in our day, maybe his fellow slave owed him a couple hundred bucks or something like that, something that could easily be paid back. And the first slave corners the slave who owes him a couple hundred bucks or so, and he begins beating him and choking him, demanding that the fellow slave repay him. And the fellow slave pleads with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But instead of having patience with the man, instead of feeling compassion toward the man, instead of showing mercy to the man, he throws him in prison where he was going to stay until the debt was paid. The other slaves, who all saw this happen, they go to the master to report what had happened, and the master is just Beside himself. He's, he's outraged. And so he calls for that first slave, the original slave, whose debt had been forgiven, to come to see him. And he says to him, Matthew chapter 18, verses 32-34, to he says, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Mercy? See, there's that, that's what we're looking for. And his Lord moved with anger handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him which again was an amount that he would never be able to get his way out of jesus concludes the parable with this warning saying my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart verse 35 So clearly the point of this parable isn't limited to financial transactions and the release of financial debts. No, it's about having mercy. It's about showing compassion to anyone and everyone who sins against us in whatever way that may be. Now speaking for myself, I can say that there are a small handful of people who have really sinned against me like badly right? Just a small handful of people who have sinned badly against me. One of those instances was before I was a Christian. It was from when I was a child. I was abused by an older boy in the neighborhood that I grew up in, and my way, the way that I responded to his sin against me was eventually to devise this plan to get revenge. I I can tell you with all seriousness that I had every intention in my heart of seeking vengeance against that that kid in the worst way imaginable. The Lord dealt with him before I could, thankfully. A second example happened well after I had become a Christian. Uh, someone sinned against me greatly, only now it hit me totally different. Instead of seeing this as, oh, I'm entitled to, to this not happening to me. This person needs to pay. Instead, what I realized was, oh, this is just a, a fraction. This is just a sliver of what God feels when I sin against Him. And so, realizing that God had forgiven me of such greater sins than any sin that's ever been committed against me of course i was willing to show mercy and forgiveness toward that person how could i possibly justify withholding forgiveness and mercy against anyone who sins against me if god has not withheld mercy and forgiveness from me so what's the difference between the first and second examples primarily and most importantly, that I had personally tasted the goodness and the sweetness of God's mercy. And the same can be said of all of God's people. When we understand the greatness of God's mercy and the way that He has freely, freely demonstrated mercy toward us, it changes us. It gives us a different perspective. It makes us eager to demonstrate the same mercy toward others, regardless of how badly they may sin against us. That's the point here. If you understand that you have done absolutely nothing to deserve God's mercy that all you deserve, if you understand that all you deserve is the fullest and the most horrifying outpouring of God's holy wrath on you, your attitude changes toward those who sin against you. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that when somebody sins against you, you, you should put yourself in the same situation and the, the, the relationship is completely restored just like it was before. Maybe yes, maybe maybe no. It might be wisest to break off the relationship, or that might not be necessary. Wisdom uh, will help you discern uh, the, the needed response. But whichever it may be, either way, you must forgive you must forgive. You must show mercy. And if you have tasted the goodness and the sweetness of God's mercy toward you, you will be eager to show mercy, to forgive others. Now, we know that Jesus promised that the world would hate us, don't we? In fact, when we go through difficult times with the world, we we stand on that. We, we remember that. We look back and say, Jesus said that this is how it was going to be. They hate us because they hate Him. But we should feel compassion toward those who sin against us. Even if it's the world, we should feel compassion for them. Why? Because the Scriptures tell us in Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this world, talking about Satan that is, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Listen, if you're walking down the street and a blind person runs into you, do you punch them? Do you sock them? You know, what do you do? Uh, you realize they're blind. You say, oh, I, I'm sorry. I'm the one who was in the wrong here. I I hold nothing against you. In fact, let me let me help you, if anything, Right? So instead of getting angry at the unbelieving world, we should feel compassion toward them. We should feel mercy toward them. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, he says, If I know that I am a debtor to mercy alone, If I know that I am a Christian solely because of that free grace of God, there should be no pride left in me. There should be nothing vindictive. There should be no insisting upon my rights. Rather, as I look out upon others, if there is anything in them that is unworthy or that is a manifestation of sin, I should have this great sorrow for them in my heart. End quote. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, the reason he didn't forgive his fellow slave is because he didn't understand and he didn't feel thankful for the mercy that he himself had received. But the same will not, cannot be said of God's people, of those who are in his kingdom. He will work to ensure that we understand the beauty of the gift of mercy that we have received. Here's what Paul says our attitude must be toward those who sin against us. He writes, again, this is from Romans chapter 12. This is the turning point. Chapters 1 to 11, he's talking about doctrine. Chapters 12 to 16, he's talking about deeds. Here's what he says about how we should respond to those who sin against us in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good." That's the kind of mercy that Jesus is talking about here. Everyone who has put their faith for salvation in Jesus has received more mercy than we could possibly even begin to wrap our minds around. God's mercy toward us is of course most fully seen in the fact that He sent His only Son into the world to rescue and to redeem a people for Himself. The promise for all who have repented and believed on Christ is that God has shown us mercy, that we are forgiven, we are cleansed of sin, and that God's own perfect righteousness in Christ has been credited to us. What mercy! we could not be more undeserving what grace and his mercy and grace are only found by believing in jesus there's not a drop of grace to be found outside of jesus what an impossible thing that is for us to fully comprehend but as we consider these truths us May we, in turn, be a people who realize that we can't even begin to grasp the depths of mercy that God has shown toward us. That it is far too big, far too great for our finite minds to even begin to fathom. And may we be known before the world as a people who are characterized by and who love to have opportunities to demonstrate mercy. Because mercy in us toward those who even sin against us as badly as anybody could sin against us is a sure sign of us having received mercy from God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word for the way that it instructs us, for the way that it corrects us and rebukes us. Oh Lord, with this beatitude, You know how strongly our flesh revolts against this thought. And we recognize, therefore, that it is only by Your Spirit working within us that we may do this. We thank You that You have made us partakers and recipients of Your mercy. We acknowledge that we could not be more undeserving of your mercy. And yet in your kindness, in your compassion, in your mercy, you reached down and you pulled us out of the muck and mire of human existence. You pulled us out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. You drew us to Christ when our flesh would have completely resisted and gone the other way. So we thank you for the mercy that you have shown toward us, and we pray, O Lord, that as we consider these things, that we would be a people who delight in showing mercy to others, that Christ would be glorified, and your power would be demonstrated in that. We pray for him to be glorified in our lives, and we recognize that as we attempt to witness to those who do not know you, there will be hostility that we endure. And yet we pray that by your grace, we may be a people who are characterized by compassion and mercy toward those who are lost in darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.